Enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. That the fact that I record this podcast in GarageBand is the reason it's fuzzy. Maybe fizzy? Fizzy sounds nice. I don't know that my podcast is clean. Despite the rating it gets on iTunes, I get a freebie swear or two per episode, so shh. It could be cleaner audio. It's kind of on brand, though. And the person who told me that they'd scrubbed my podcast audio in 10 seconds in different software, my brother, also said that I should keep it the way that it is, because it sounds like I'm transmitting from space. I'm not. I'm profoundly not. I am in a cramped, dark pod, but it's full of my shoes and reusable grocery bags and big coats. It's not space-worthy. Still, that fizziness that all the pop filters in the world won't fix does sound an awful lot like this is some kind of radio broadcast. There's a nostalgia to it that I appreciate. Maybe when I run out of things to say about space, I'll try recording in a program that can defizz me, but I can't see the end of these space episodes yet, though I am coming up on a year of recording by weekly podcasts, and I said I'd switch over. I'm not switching yet, though. Let's call it another year in space. Just like all the satellites and telescopes and such that we've launched up there, I'm hanging on longer than expected, and hopefully still getting you some cool astronomy content. But hey, radio. Radio is more than something you can listen to in the car. All those telescopes beaming images back to Earth? We know not all of them are optical telescopes. I've talked a bit about Hubble T and the Chandra X-ray Observatory and quite a few others. They all deal in astronomical imaging using different wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum, and radio waves fall into that category. First, though, let's explore light. Light is a particle that acts like a wave. Photons, right? They're the components that transmit light. Light is also one form, and a pretty middle-of-the-road form, of radiation. Radiation, in the most benign definition of the word, is energy that travels and spreads out as it goes. Electromagnetic radiation is a specific kind of radiation, and it is specific to photons. The different types of electromagnetic radiation out there in the world are produced through different processes and detected in different ways, but they are not fundamentally different. Each photon that generates electromagnetic radiation contains a certain amount of energy. The different types of radiation are defined by the amount of energy found in their photons. Gamma rays are the most energetic, and if you see an electromagnetic spectrum chart, the wavelengths of these guys are very, very close together. The amount of energy decreases gradually as you move from gamma rays into X-rays, ultraviolet, visible light, infrared, microwave, and finally, radio waves. To bring it back to telescopes, I can name a few orbiting telescopes that hit different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum over the years. Fermi and the Neil Garris Swift Observatory give us gamma-ray images. New Star and Chandra provide X-ray imaging. Galax gives ultraviolet. Kepler and Hubble T scope visible light. 
Spitzer and Sophia handle infrared. Planck gave us microwave until 2013 when its science activities ceased. And the Russian Spectre currently takes on radio images. But these are all orbital satellite observatories. There are also a lot of telescopes on Earth's surface that look at different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Hess in Namibia looks at gamma rays. The South African Large Telescope in South Africa looks at visible light, as do the two telescopes that make up the WM Keck Observatory on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. The Combined Array for the Research in Millimeter Wave Astronomy, or CARMA, observed microwaves from the Inyo Mountains of California until it was decommissioned in 2015, and the Carl G. Jansky Very Large Array in New Mexico, which I believe was a site in the fabulous movie Contact, continues to look at radio waves. The Very Large Array was also part of the very first imaging done with radio waves. In 1997, scientists at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Socorro, New Mexico, used the Japanese HALCA satellite in conjunction with the National Science Foundation's ground-based telescopes, which are the Very Long Baseline Array and the Very Large Array. Astronomers and computer scientists used a special-purpose computer, the VLBA correlator, to combine the signals from the satellite and both ground telescopes into a single giant radio telescope. What they were trying to do, and what most radio astronomers are trying to do, is create an image of the object they're aiming the radio telescope at. Visual telescopes use larger and larger lenses and mirrors to get their images as clear as possible. It doesn't necessarily get you a larger section of sky in the image, but you can pick up on greater details when your lens or mirror is bigger. The same principle applies to imaging using radio waves, but because radio waves are much longer than light waves, as in the distance between the peaks is greater, a radio telescope needs to be even bigger than an optical visible light spectrum telescope to get the same level of detail. At an equivalent diameter, a radio telescope's image resolution would be a thousand times worse than a visible light telescope, because radio waves are much longer than those observed by optical telescopes, which have wavelengths of around one thousandth of a millimeter, or one micrometer. So in spite of the Very Large Array's name, it isn't the miles-wide dish that it would be needed to create an image equal to an optical telescope's. That's just impractical. Repair would be tedious. Maintenance, ugh. All of it's a bad idea. Miles-wide dishes would be really rough to work with. Instead, in the 1950s, British and Australian radio astronomers, including Sir Martin Ryle, Derek Vonberg, Bernard Mills, and Anthony Hewish, developed and cultivated a technique that uses smaller, widely spaced radio antennas. Combining the signals of all these antennae produced image resolutions that were of equal caliber to what would have been created if there'd been a single dish as large as the distance between the smaller antennae. Does that make sense? When scientists used this technique to create an image in 1997 using HALCA and the very long baseline and very large arrays, the resulting images were more than a million times more detailed than those produced by the human eye. Just because they had so much distance between the different radio receivers that they were using. The technique is called interferometry. It was first proposed by a man I've mentioned before in episode 10, who had the most amazing name, Armand Hippolyte Louis Fizeau. <laughs> in that episode, I talked about how he explored the spectroscopic ramifications of the Doppler effect. Fizeau suggested that measuring the shift of a spectral line from its laboratory standard wavelength would allow you to compute a star's radial velocity in space, which is the technique used to calculate the radial velocity of objects outside of our solar system, and it's what was used to determine redshift and blueshift distance relations. 
But just as the Doppler effect stuck instead of the Fizeau effect, the principal interferometry device used is called the Mickelson interferometer, after Albert Abraham Mickelson. This is an optical device that works by merging two or more sources of light to create an interference pattern, which can be measured and analyzed. Thus, we get the name interferometer. There's actually a Fizeau interferometer, too, and its benefits are that it has a wider field of view than a Mickelson interferometer, and it's easier to adjust because all you have to do is block or unblock beams from array telescopes. But it requires very, very fine measurements of wavelengths, and ultimately, I didn't see that it's being applied to astronomy. The Mickelson interferometer is, in today's age, a laser beam. It passes through a beam splitter to break the single beam into two identical beams of light. One beam continues in a straight line, while the other is reflected at 90 degrees. Each beam travels down an arm of the interferometer to a mirror, which then reflects each beam back to the beam splitter, and the two beams merge back into a single beam. A photodetector then measures the resulting beam's brightness, and this enables you to see if there were any changes in the distance the light traveled. It's been used to observe redshift and blue shift, and Mickelson used it in an experiment with his colleague Edward Morley that disproved the theory about light traveling through this invisible substance called ether that all matter swam through without noticing it. This was a theory about how light traveled, and it was wrong. Mickelson and Morley didn't mean to disprove the theory, though, and Mickelson insisted he'd made a mistake for a while, which it's kind of funny. <laughs> this is all optics, though. And in this episode, I want to talk about interference patterns and interferometry's applications in radio astronomy. Oh my god, that was a lot of big words and really weird concepts. I'm so sorry. I started with one idea for this podcast, and then as I was researching, I slowly realized that I don't know anything about A, radio waves, B, radio astronomy, or C, how you get images out of radio waves. This has been kind of all over the place, and a lot of research went into it, but I did want to establish some background knowledge about the electromagnetic spectrum, measuring photon waves, and telescope principles before I dive into radio astronomy. And then at the end, the true inciting idea behind this podcast, radio quiet zones. So hang in there. Radio waves. They're a part of the electromagnetic spectrum. They're generated by photons, and they're the largest, slowest photon waves. That doesn't mean much, though. An electromagnetic wave's frequency is the number of times it oscillates up and down per second, and even if they're the slowest kind of wave, radio waves are still pretty fast. When you listen to an AM radio broadcast, your radio is tuning in to a sine wave with a frequency of around 1 million cycles per second, or 1 million hertz. And FM radio signals operate in the range of 100 million hertz. This means that tuning your radio to 105.9 on the FM dial means receiving a sine wave of 105,900,000 cycles per second. The only reason these distinctions exist is because AM radio has been around for longer, and the technology to detect radio waves wasn't very strong, so it was easier to capture the lower frequency waves. There are actually distinctions for every kind of wireless technology out there. AM and FM radio, shortwave and citizens band radio, TV stations, garage door openers, baby monitors, cordless phones, wildlife tracking collars, cell phones, GPS, air traffic control radar, toy airplanes and cars, alarm systems. All of these different frequencies are regulated by government bodies, so you can't tune into radio communications that you shouldn't hear or interfere with things like a stranger's garage door opener. I'll address this more in a moment. The way interferometry works with astronomy is by having many telescopes or receivers spread over a large distance. 
The electromagnetic radiation collected at each of these separate small telescopes is then combined to recreate the image in a process called aperture synthesis. What you're basically doing is making a large aperture out of many smaller scattered ones. To get back to the first radio astronomy to imaging success and to put the scale of this venture in perspective, the very large array in New Mexico, the one that was used in the movie Contact, it uses 27 antennae at a maximum separation of 20 miles. And the very long baseline array has 10 antennae at a maximum separation of 5,000 miles. That's wicked far. And when you look at all of these spread out antennae, what you're basically building is an array that is as wide as all of these individual telescopes. Each individual telescope involved in the interferometry process observes the same astronomical object to pick up some of the electromagnetic radiation that it emits. This can be visible light, but because we're going to stick with radio astronomy for now, it can be radio waves. Because the radio waves from an object are traveling through space and then through the Earth's atmosphere, the waves arrive at each receiving telescope at slightly different times. When the beams are recombined, each interferometer needs to compensate for these tiny time differences to make sure that all of the waves reach the detector at the same time. Interferometry only works if the information received by each telescope is successfully combined. Radio waves are combined electronically using a powerful computer called a correlator. Also, radio interferometry in astronomy developed before optical interferometry because the longer wavelengths of the electromagnetic radiation are easier to combine when they're radio waves. So there's a big rich history with radio and astronomy. With great radio imaging capability comes great responsibility? Well, the saying falls apart here because limitations is probably more accurate. When I was listing off ground-based observatories, I mentioned the South African Large Telescope in Namibia, the W.M. Keck Observatory on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, the recently decommissioned KARMA in the Inyo Mountains of California, and the Carl G. Jukansky Very Large Array in New Mexico. Consider what these locations all might have in common. Hint, if you listen to my 17th episode on Dark Sky Reserves, you might be getting an inkling of where I'm heading. All of them are built in pretty remote locations. High altitude is also ideal for optical telescopes because you get less atmospheric interference. I listed all of the things that utilize radio waves, though, so there is an additional need for radio quiet zones in the areas that surround the highly sensitive radio telescopes. The first radio quiet zone was set between the states of Virginia and West Virginia. The Federal Communications Commission, better known as the FCC, established this national radio quiet zone in 1958 with the assistance of the Interdepartment Radio Advisory Committee to, according to their website, quote, minimize possible harmful interference to the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Greenbank, West Virginia, and the radio receiving facilities for the United States Navy in Sugar Grove, West Virginia. That Navy receiving facility is actually the home of the NSA, fun fact. All those wiretappers? Yeah, they're working out of there. The National Radio Quiet Zone encloses approximately 13,000 square miles near the state border of Virginia and West Virginia, including the Monongalia National Forest, which is the main setting for the recent six-episode arc of the Adventure Zone. Thanks, McElroys, for very indirectly suggesting this topic in their setup episode when they mentioned the forest is in the Radio Quiet Zone. I hadn't thought about it, but it makes sense to limit radio interference, and as it turns out, radio interference can come from a lot of unexpected places. CNN did a story in 2015 on the radio observatory in Greenbank, West Virginia. 
It's in the Allegheny Mountains, because unlike other types of telescopes, radio telescopes work best if you can stick them in a valley and get them some natural shielding from outside interference. Coniferous trees, with a lot of moisture content in their needles, also provide additional protection from radio frequency interference, and this area definitely has that kind of cushion. Astronomers working at the Robert C. Byrd Green Bank Telescope are listening to distant galaxies and supernovae, seeking out energies that Green Bank Observatory Director Karen O'Neill describes as, quote, less than the energy of a single snowflake falling on the Earth. CNN got a little more numeric, saying that they were looking at, quote, a signal that is so faint it's about a billionth of a billionth of a millionth of a watt. Weirdly, that article rated things in watts instead of hertz, though watts are a measurement of the amount of electricity a device uses, while, as I said, hertz are the number of times an electromagnetic wave cycles per second. CNN said that cell phones emit three watts, and even that was enough to overwhelm the sounds that astronomers were seeking out with their sensitive radio arrays. So, over the entire national radio quiet zone, cell phone use is limited, but it gets way more restrictive as you get closer to the telescope. There's actually a radio frequency interference security team that drives around in a white truck, scouting for radio interference from things like cell phones, microwave ovens, certain kinds of doorbells, baby monitors, faulty vacuum cleaners, or even arcing power lines. Gophers can chew through wires that then disrupt the radio signal. And actually, a wet dog that was lying on an electric heating pad messed with them for ages until they realized what it was, and they got the dog a waterproof heating pad. The town of Green Bank has a population of 143 as of the 2010 census, and though a few residents had Wi-Fi in 2015, the RFI police worked to have the astronomers switch to different frequencies so that their work won't be disrupted, and residents could keep their internet. Most of them had dial-up or ethernet, though. If you live on the observatory's property, you sign a waiver not to use a microwave. Only diesel vehicles are allowed within a mile of the observatory because spark plugs could overwhelm the signals. Workers use walkie-talkies on very specific frequencies to communicate with each other. It's a strict, strict system. There are a few other established quiet zones around the world. A report published by the International Telecommunications Union in 2012 outlined some common features of radio quiet zones, and the report came out after a lot of these zones had already been established, so it more served to explain the characteristics, not set regulations on them. For example, the report says, quote, transmissions below 15 gigahertz are restricted within a certain radius around the Arecibo Observatory located in Puerto Rico. Since no observations are carried out, nor are expected to be carried out above that frequency in the future, no restrictions are needed on higher frequency transmissions. The reverse is not necessarily true, however. For example, some restrictions may be imposed on transmissions below 30 gigahertz in the neighborhood of the large International ALMA Observatory, even though it is not expected to ever observe below that frequency due to its susceptibility to interference at these lower frequencies in the signal path. The ALMA Observatory is in Chile, by the way, and it's a truly international operation with international partnerships between the European Southern Observatory, the U.S. National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Natural Sciences of Japan, and connections with Canada, Taiwan, Korea, and Chile. 
What I liked was that the report defined radio quiet zones as, quote, a buffer zone. It's impossible to completely avoid electromagnetic interference from anything, especially the increasing power and number of man-made devices, but you can negotiate with people to reduce these effects. There's a chart of radio quiet zones in the 2012 report, and a member of the Scientific Committee on Frequency Allocations for Radio Astronomy put together a Google map in 2016 of all the radio quiet zones in the world, both of which are pretty handy if you want to get a sense of where they are located and what kinds of powers they can exercise to keep radio interference out. Both are linked on my website, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Check them out if you're interested. In addition to these international zones of radio quiet, though, there's a bit of a push to establish some radio quiet zones elsewhere in the galaxy. The International Telecommunication Union Radio Sector has recommended designating two locations in space as radio quiet zones, the shielded zone on the moon's far side and the Sun-Earth-Lagrangian point L2. The dark side of the moon I've talked about before, and no, it's not just a Pink Floyd album that, that syncs well with Wizard of Oz. It truly is the side of the moon that we on Earth never see. Anything that goes behind the moon can't transmit it when it's on the other side, the reason being that there's a moon in the way. So why not designate it a radio quiet zone? It's interesting to consider from a philosophical standpoint. No one's enforcing radio quiet, it's happening naturally. Radio quiet is a resource there, really. The ITUR is trying to maintain that resource and sees, quote, the necessity of maintaining the shielded zone of the moon as an area of great potential for observations by the Radio Astronomy Service and by passive space research, and consequently of maintaining it as free as possible from transmissions. The Lagrangian point, though, I haven't talked about since episode three. Joseph Louis Lagrange solved the problem of where three bodies could orbit while staying in the same position relative to each other in the 18th century, and his five solutions are called the five Lagrange points, after the mathematical badass who discovered them. Satellites have orbited at L2, including the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, and, if all goes according to plan, the Webb Telescope will be orbiting at L2 by the end of 2019. To imagine where L2 is... It's in a straight line from the sun to the earth, so further away from the sun than the earth is. It goes sun, earth, Lagrangian 2. This should mean that anything orbiting at L2 will fall behind earth's orbit since it has a further distance to travel around the sun. Because it's at the L2 point though, the gravitational force of both the sun and the earth will ensure that it keeps up with the earth. The Webb Telescope is also unique because it will be orbiting around the L2 point itself, which will keep it from going into the shadow of the Earth or the Moon and losing transmission. The ITUR sees value in establishing a radio quiet zone at L2 because it's far from Earth. Orbiting the point itself is possible, and it's a relatively small area to keep clear from radio interference. Hopefully astronomers will take them up on this suggestion. So that was a very rough, quick, dirty overview of radio astronomy. I feel like I didn't answer all of the questions that even I just had, so definitely hit me up with clarifying questions if you have them. I want to know more about this topic. It's just so hard to cover. To review, radio waves are collected by many smaller receivers, and then an image is compiled for better quality. I hit that. Radio waves are super low frequency, so they were the first to be used for deep space examinations. Got that. And then radio quiet zones? I think that's a decent outline of what we discussed. 
for the next episode. I was actually super intrigued by the SOFIA Observatory, which I mentioned earlier because it came up in my research. SOFIA stands for Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, and it's straight up a big plane. It's a plane that flies around and collects space data. It was preceded by something called Kuiper, and I won't say any more because I really want to learn what's up with that. My dad also suggested looking into Chuck Yeager, who I mentioned in the last episode about Challenger. He was apparently a really influential pilot in the construction of the space shuttles. And now that I've learned more about radio astronomy, and hopefully you have a greater sense of it too, I'm going to add some questions about it when I chat with my physicist friend pursuing her degree. Hence, send me your queries, and I will ask her. Or, do you want to hear something else about space? Please, send me some suggestions on Tumblr or tweet it at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid. You can subscribe to my show on iTunes, and I may actually start to see some fun metrics of who's listening on there. Thank you, Apple, for such an odd but probably fun update for podcasters. I would love it if you threw me a rating and maybe even a review over there, too, so I can get a sense of what folks are liking or what I should work on in this podcast. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. Even though this topic was super complicated and I'm not sure I did it justice, it still shines my sunset. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to shine some sunset light on you too. The next episode will be up on February 26th. You can find my sources, music credits, a vocab list, and the episode transcript at all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD. Signing off.